Father, as we gather in the name of Jesus and under that great gospel banner that Christ has more mercy than we have sin, Lord, that's good news for a bunch of sinners like us. Lord, thank you that in our brokenness and in our smallness and in our weakness, his grace is greater. God, that's my only hope as I stand to teach the Bible today is that you are greater in grace than I am broken in sin. So Lord, I pray that you take this teaching and Father, show and prove through it that you're the teacher of this church, that the Holy Spirit is the one guiding us into truth and take... Father, with the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart, make them acceptable to you, O Lord. God, I pray not only for ourselves, but I pray, Lord, for those who are gathered throughout this community in your name. Lord, I pray for Pastor Matt Jackson and the people of faith, the believers, our brothers and sisters at First Baptist Church, O'Galley. Would you fill them with your spirit? God, I pray in their gathering, they would sense a movement of Jesus like maybe they haven't experienced in their lifetimes. Lord, I pray for awakening and revival among them. And may they go out with joy and gladness and power as a demonstration of Jesus in this community. And I pray that you would continue a great and glorious work through our brothers and sisters in O'Galley. So God, may the glory of your name cover this community like the waters cover the sea. And may it begin with us be glorified in our study of your word. And we pray all of these things in Jesus' name and all of God's people said, amen. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. If you have your Bibles, I want to encourage you to go ahead and turn to Daniel chapter three, Daniel chapter three. For those of you who are visiting with us this morning, we are uh, continuing a verse-by-verse study of the book of Daniel. And we're several weeks in, and I don't have time certainly to uh, completely catch you up on everything that we've talked about so far. You can go on the website if you're interested and catch up on your own. But I do want to give you a little bit of context just so you'll have some idea of where we are in our study today. 600 years before Jesus was born, the greatest empire on the earth was the Babylonian Empire. And their king's name was King, what is it, church? Nebuchadnezzar, great baby name for those of you who are expecting, Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon. And what we find is that Nebuchadnezzar led his army to surround the city of Jerusalem. And where we find the book of Daniel beginning is after King Nebuchadnezzar had raided the city of Jerusalem, he took out of that city a group of Jewish people to come live in exile in the capital city of Babylon. And among those people who were taken out of the city of Jerusalem, there were four young Jewish men, Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Those four young men are talked about in this book at great length. They're taken from Jerusalem. They're sent back to the city of Babylon, and then they were placed inside of a three-year program that was designed to basically... um, caused them to to adopt the culture of Babylon and then get fast-tracked into high-ranking government positions inside of the government of Babylon. And that was all a part of a strategy that Nebuchadnezzar had. You see, he knew something. He knew that if he could simply capture the hearts and minds 
of a nation's young people, he would be able to rule that nation without force because a generation would rise up that simply considered themselves to be part of Babylon. And in that way, we see great parallels to what's happening inside of our own world today, an attack on the hearts and minds of the next generation. And so this study has been very pertinent for the series of of events that we are seeing take place in our world today. Well, one of the first ways that Nebuchadnezzar begins to influence those four young Jewish men to adopt the culture of Babylon was by changing their names, right? Daniel was given a Babylonian name like the rest of his friends. Daniel was called Belteshazzar, Hananiah was called Shadrach, Mishael was called Meshach, and Azariah was called Abednego. And we study what those names mean in our first, our first sermon in chapter 1. And what, we, what we've seen is that even though they were forced and pressured to adopt the culture of Babylon, these young men, even though they weren't rebellious or obnoxious to their Babylonian leaders, they refused to abandon their faithfulness to God as God. They identified for who they were, the followers of the Lord God Almighty, and they did not bend their knee for one moment of compromise as God's people. And last week, we saw one of the most poignant examples of that in the entire book. Nebuchadnezzar had built a 90-foot-tall statue overlaid with gold, and he gathered all of the dignitaries and officials of his kingdom into this large field, the plain of Dura. And he commanded that everybody present bow down and worship to his golden image. And what we find is that everyone did it. If there was any time where teenagers could say everyone's doing it, it was right here in chapter three, except for Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. They refused to bow, even though the punishment was death. And that's where we pick up this story. They are standing in the presence of the most powerful man in the world. They're looking him in the eye and unequivocally saying, we will not bow. We are faithful to the God who's faithful to us. That's where we'll start with our text this morning. But before we read our text, I just want to acknowledge that I am so excited for how you as a church are engaging in this Daniel study. You guys are studying and digging in, and every week I'm fielding questions that show you guys are actually paying attention. It's crazy for me. I don't know what to do. It's been 20 years in ministry, first time a church has paid attention. No, that's not the point. They're getting... I'm getting a lot of questions, and I, I wanted to start answering some of them as best that I can. And there are two questions that I've been getting a lot, and I figured, why not just go ahead and give my best answer for both of these questions that it seems a lot of you are asking. First question is this. Why is Daniel always referred to by his Hebrew name, and his friends seem to go by their Babylonian names? Anybody wondered that? No one. Why am I asking this question out loud? Yes, absolutely. Second question is this. Why isn't Daniel included in the group of people who refused to bow before Nebuchadnezzar's statue? Interesting question, right? Thought-provoking. Well, let me just answer that as quickly as I can. I don't know. So let's read our text this morning. No. 
So we do not focus on speculation here as a church. That's not a part of, of good, ba- good biblical teaching. So you don't need to know all the things that I think might happen or could have happened. So we don't focus on a lot of speculation. We want to know what the plain teaching of the Bible is, and that becomes our main point. False teachers are marked by speculation, not faithful teachers. But there is a place for us to ask questions and wonder, what are the possibilities for what could have taken place? So let me just give you those two questions I'm actually getting a lot, uh, at least on some occasions, not this morning so much, but I will share with you my thoughts on those two questions very quickly. Let me start with that second question on Daniel being included in the group that didn't bow. If you notice at the end of chapter two, Daniel is given a higher position of authority than Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. He's actually made basically like the second in command or the prime minister of the Babylonian empire. So it's entirely possible that while the king had all of the government officials gathered there in the plain of Dora, Daniel actually had to stay behind and run the government. I mean, just think about the fact that when we have a State of the Union address and all of those officials are there at the state capitol building at the State of the Union, somebody has to stay back as a just-in-case in operating the government. Well, maybe a similar thing was taking place here. As all of these dignitaries are present, focused on worshiping this statue, it's very possible that Daniel had to actually be in charge of operating the empire that stretched from Iraq all the way up over to Egypt, north and south, this major undertaking. So it's very possible that kind of like the designated survivor, there's Daniel maybe not even at the plain of Dora. Now, there are a lot of possibilities besides that, but that's one. And one of the reasons, and this goes to the first question, that Daniel isn't referred to by his Babylonian name is because in just a couple of chapters, uh, chapter 5, verse 31, the Medo-Persian empire is going to overthrow Babylon. And those Medes and Persians would not have used the Babylonian name for Daniel. They would have just used his regular name. Even more, the second half of this book is about visions that God directly gives to Daniel. And oftentimes it comes through angels sent from God to Daniel. And when they address him, when God speaks to him, he speaks to him using his given Hebrew name, the God-honoring name that Daniel had. So you don't find God calling Daniel through his Babylonian name, and you don't find the Medes and Persians referring to Daniel by his Babylonian name. But Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are a little bit different. This is really the major scene where they show up, and the way that they're mentioned most of the time is through the language of the Babylonians. There are some guys who tell on them parts of the Babylonian officials tell on them, and of course, they would have been speaking in the native tongue and would have used their Babylonian names. Even King Nebuchadnezzar refers to them as Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego because that's their Babylonian name. And so it makes sense that for continuity's sake, Daniel doesn't want to switch back and forth to confuse us. So he just goes with the flow in a sense of their Babylonian name because that's the context of this chapter. And if those don't help you as explanations, refer to my first answer. I don't know. All right. Well, with that in mind, let's look at some plain main things from Daniel chapter 3. I'll begin reading in verse 19. Then Nebuchadnezzar was filled with fury and the expression of his face was changed against Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. He ordered the furnace heated seven times more than it was usually heated. That was likely a, a large 
kind of walk-in kiln that would have been used for maybe drying the bricks or curing the bricks that would have been part of the main structure for that 90-foot-tall image. That furnace was heated seven times more than it was usually heated. Verse 20, and he ordered some of the mighty men of his army. Now, notice this phrase because I'll kind of emphasize it through the rest of our text. It'll be important in just a moment. The mighty men of his army to bind Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and to cast them into the burning, fiery furnace. Then these men were bound in their cloaks, their tunics, their hats, and their other garments. I mean, this guy's really cruel. He puts on their winter gear um, in order to throw them into a fire. And they were thrown into the burning, fiery furnace because the king's order was urgent and the furnace overheated. The flame of the fire killed those men who took up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And these three men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, fell bound into the burning, fiery furnace. Then King Nebuchadnezzar was astonished and rose up in haste. He declared to his counselors, did we not cast three men bound into the fire? They answered and said to the king, true, O king. He answered and said, but I see four men unbound walking in the midst of the fire and they are not hurt. And the appearance of the fourth is like a son of the gods. Then Nebuchadnezzar came near to the door of the burning fiery furnace and he declared Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, servants of the most high God, come out and come here. Then Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego came out from the fire, and the satraps, the prefects, the governors, and the king's counselors gathered together and saw that the fire had not had any power over the bodies of those men. The hair of their heads was not singed, their cloaks were not harmed, and no smell of fire had come upon them. This is the word of God for us this morning, and there's a reason why this is one of the all-time great stories in the scripture, a story of a historical event that really occurred and really teaches us some extremely important truths. As a matter of fact, we hinted at one of the most important truths this text shows us when we were in this study last week. And what we saw last week is that you can seemingly make all of the right choices and life can seemingly go all wrong. These young men are not only being persecuted in spite of the fact that they're faithful to God, they're being persecuted precisely because they are being faithful to God. You see, the Bible is very clear that suffering is a part of life on a fallen, sinful planet, especially for followers of Jesus Christ. Suffering is going to be a part of your experience. Listen, friend, um, unless Jesus comes again, not only will you suffer, you're not making it out alive, all right? Death is a part of a, a fallen planet. Pain is a part of a fallen planet. We live in a world that is diametrically opposed in its sin to the way that God says life works best. And so we should not be surprised when the fiery trials of life, the pain and suffering of this fallen world are a part of our lives. It's a direct result of living in a world gone wrong, a world that is not operating according to God's good initial design. Sin has come in. And sin has turned this world wrong side up. And our text is a word that reminds us that we will all experience suffering. It reminds us not only that we will suffer, but it shows us that our suffering isn't pointless. It isn't random. God isn't simply allowing it. What we see in this particular text is that not only will we suffer, but God will use our suffering. What you see in this passage is really about what God is doing 
when you suffer. He isn't just watching. He isn't merely allowing it. He is not simply a spectator in your suffering. He's at work in your suffering. This passage shows us that God allows suffering, and we know he is strong enough to exercise power over the fire, right? Right? Is he strong enough to exercise power? Stick with me on this one. He's strong enough. We see it. But he doesn't use that power to keep them from the fire, does he? He lets them go in. And what we find is that in his sovereign providential care, not only does he allow the fire, he uses it. He actually blesses them. They are better because of the fire than they would have been in spite of it. And guys, that's our big idea that we'll unpack this morning. God uses the fiery trials of life to bless those who trust in him. God uses the fiery trials of life to bless those who trust in him. Friend, I do not know the pain and suffering that's in your life. Here's what I do know. There is pain and suffering in your life. You are walking through a trial of one variety or another. And I know that as you come into this place, that it could be tempting to feel that I could speak freely and effortlessly about pain and suffering and trial. And friend, I do not desire in any way, and neither does the word of God, to minimize the reality of your suffering. Here's what I know. There are people in this place who are dying today. There are people here in this place, some who are joining us online, who are not only receiving bad news about themselves, but people they love are dying today. And if they could, they would trade places in a moment with children and grandchildren who are suffering from terminal diseases, people who've walked through pain that I cannot even imagine. I know there are people in this room right here who are suffering the loss not only of your health, but of your job, of your reputation, of your home, of your marriage, of your own children. And I pray, friend, that you do not hear my words as trivial or trite. Pain is painful and suffering is the result of wicked sin in this world, a broken world gone wrong side up. And it's a world in which God hates sin and the suffering that it causes so much that he was willing to send his own son, Jesus, to suffer and die to save and redeem us from the sin and suffering of this world. But here we are, waiting for the fullness of our redemption at the return of Christ, living in a world that's still filled with suffering, many of you a life that's still filled with suffering. And as you walk through the fire today, I pray that you will hear the word of the Lord. While you're walking through the fiery trial of your own life, God Almighty is at work. He is stronger than the fire, and he could certainly spare you from walking through it, but he's allowed it. And he's allowed it for a reason. And the reason is that he wants to bless you as his child. He wants to make you better because of the fire and not just in spite of it. And what I want us to do in the time that we have left is I want to show you from this passage. And there are many more we can look at through the rest of the Bible. But from this passage, I want to show you three things that God is doing 
in the midst of our fire. As you walk through the fiery trial, what is God doing? Well, we see three things in this text that God is doing as he uses the fiery trials of our life. Number one, God uses the fire for freedom. For freedom. There's something that's really clearly being pointed out in the power of the Holy Spirit as the author writes this text. And I hope you noticed it. I emphasized it when we read it. But verse 20 says that Nebuchadnezzar ordered that the mighty men, he said, Give me the strongest guys for this job. The mightiest men in my army come. I want you to bind Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego as you cast them into the fiery furnace. It wasn't enough to simply throw them in, he made sure that they were bound. Verse 21 affirms that fact, says these men were bound as they're thrown in. Verse 23 says these three men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, fell bound into the burning, fiery furnace. Verse 24 says that Nebuchadnezzar looks into the fire and he asks, didn't we cast three men bound into the fire? Do you guys think that the word of God is drawing our attention to something here? What might it be? It might be that these three men were bound, right? You see that? You don't, have to be a, you don't have to be a Bible scholar. You don't even have to go to seminary to see something that plain. They're bound. They're bound. Their hands and feet are tied. They are bound. But look what happens next. Verse 25, Nebuchadnezzar says, I see four men unbound. Verse 27 says, the fire had not any power over the bodies of those men. The hair of their heads was not singed. Their cloaks were not harmed. No smell of fire had come upon them. Guys, I have smelled more like smoke and singed more hair grilling burgers on the 4th of July than they experienced in the fiery trial of Nebuchadnezzar. Do you see what is going on here? Here's what's going on here. The only thing the fire touched was the thing that had them bound. They didn't even smell like smoke. Their hair wasn't singed. Their clothes were just fine. The only thing the fire touched was the thing that had them bound. You want to know what God is doing in the fiery trial of your life? God is liberating you from the things that have you bound. God allows the things the enemy designs to destroy us to be the very place where he frees us from the strongholds that the enemy has in our life. The things that have us bound to the the system and structure and flow of this world, the stuff of this world that captures our hearts and becomes idols to us, the patterns of our own sin in this world. Jesus uses the fiery trials to liberate us from the things of this world and the patterns of our own sin. Listen, have you ever noticed how little the stuff of this world matters when you're walking through a fiery trial? Like when you, when you leave the doctor's office and he has just told you that it's cancer, there's no real difference between a Ford and a Ferrari when you're driving home, right? It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter because the fiery trial redefines what matters most about our life. Have you ever noticed how hard it is to find time to pray fervently when your life is all smooth sailing? Maybe I should ask those of you who had a smooth sail in week how much time you spent in fervent prayer before the Lord. Listen, 10 years ago this last Wednesday, 
I uh, celebrated a bit of an anniversary. My, my little brother was visiting from Ohio, him and his family, and um, we were going to spend some time at the beach. And I noticed as we were getting ready to go to the beach that our old cooler was just a wreck. It was just a wreck. You know, living in Florida, everything gets ruined by the salt air, and even a plastic cooler somehow was ruined in Florida. And so here I'm trying to get ready to go to the beach, realize we need a new cooler for all of these family members. So I go to the store, I find this amazing deal on a red igloo cooler, $29, $29, 10 year anniversary of it. I remember this last Wednesday, $29, this red cooler even came with one of those big, huge water jugs. You know what I'm talking about? 29 bucks. Like you're not even impressed. People... (laughs) That's a cooler and a water jug in Florida for 29 bones. Red igloo, super cool. I think it even had wheels on it. Wheels. Come on, it's like two-wheel drive, but still. I take that thing home. I show off my new cooler. I'm bragging about this amazing deal. We went to the beach. I got to tell you, it was Jetty Park, and it had amazing surfing waves. Miracle of miracles. Surfing waves at Jetty. I mean, overhead, beautiful, clean break. It was unbelievable. We're out there in the water. I'm just like, this day can't get any better. I got a $29 cooler with a free water jug to boot, clean overhead surfing waves. Life is good. So good. 10 years later on a Wednesday, I celebrate a 10 year anniversary. We go out, we get the snacks and drinks. Where, where, where were they at? In my brand new cooler. They were nice and cold. We're all standing around. And in that moment, I got the call. My older brother, who was 40 years old at the time, had been found at a stoplight, unconscious and in full cardiac arrest. Those of you who've been around for a while remember that season. It's unresponsive. We got a call from my dad. It did not look good. It did not look like Todd was going to make it. You know what happened immediately? We all start praying. They're on that beach. We all gather around. We all start praying. All those kids, moms and dads just praying. Gathered up all our stuff, went back to the house within an hour or so. We just start praying and packing. And in about an hour, we, we are all packed up and we're driving those two families back to Ohio all night long. I'm driving, just praying for my brother. And as many of you know, and I know I never finish stories and you guys hate it because you wonder how they end. My brother was miraculously revived. He was in a coma even when we arrived and unconscious. They didn't know how long he'd been without oxygen and he was miraculously revived. He's doing well today, but I will never forget that day. And guys, 10 years later, praise God. But listen, 10 years later, I'll never forget that cooler. You know, you know why I, I remember it was red and white. I remember it was 29 bucks. It was a special buy at Home Depot. I remember it really clearly. Why? Why do I remember that? I'll tell you why. Because in one moment, I was, I was struck in a moment at how my heart could be so thrilled with a $29 cooler that it captured my heart for half a day. And in a moment, something so trivial that had somehow meant so much to me was shown to be what it really was. Something that doesn't matter at all. And friend, your heart is like mine. 
Our hearts are like that. We are living our lives thrilled by all the wrong stuff. Now, red coolers may not matter to you because I could tell none of y'all was excited the way that I was about a $29 Best Buy find. But you got something. You've got a thing in your life that has your heart tied to the stuff of this world. Some of y'all are waiting on a one o'clock football game. Wondering, is he going to be done by this time? Keep it going, bro. Keep it going. And do you know what God graciously does with the fiery trials of our lives? He burns away the ties that have our hearts bound to stuff that do not matter. Can you imagine if your wake-up call didn't come until the moment you were standing before the God of this universe and had realized in that moment when the whole world faded away that you'd spent it all, your one and only life, you'd spent it all living for something that was as insignificant as a $29 cooler. And let me tell you something. On that day, your house will be no more significant than a $29 cooler. Because it will be gone just like it. And your car, your career, the world system and structure, your pursuits of hobbies, those things that are benign and fine, but are tying our hearts to this world. And God is gracious to allow the fiery trials of this life to burn away the things that have our hearts bound to the stuff of this world that just does not matter. Listen, as a matter of fact, Romans chapter 8, verse 28 and 29 says... But that's what God's doing. This is the passage that most Christians quote to other Christians to make them have hope in the midst of trial. Well, listen to the context of Romans chapter 8. Verse 28 says, And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. That sounds great, right? For those who are called according to his purpose. Well, what is the good that all things work together for? Well, look at verse 29 because it tells us. And it isn't a long, happy, easy life here on earth. That's not what it says that it's working together for the good. To bring you to 85 years old with a lucrative career in a big house. Verse 29 says, For those whom he foreknew, he predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. Listen to me, friends. If you're trusting in Jesus, God has destined you for something more glorious than you could ever imagine. He has destined that you will become just like Jesus Just like Jesus, and you need to know this, Jesus doesn't value coolers or cars or careers more than he values character. So you know what he does? He gives trials, fiery trials in this life, and he uses them for the good of making you more and more like Jesus by breaking you away from the stuff of this world and even the sinful patterns of your own life. And here's what you need to know. He won't stop until you're just like Jesus. And that's good news that means more fires. 
So what are you walking through today? What challenge, what trial are you facing? And let me ask you this. How differently would you feel about the trial of your life today if you believed that God is truly using that to make you more like Jesus? Well, he is. Second thing that God is doing in our fire is that he not only uses the fire for freedom, freeing us from the things of this world, God uses the fire for fellowship. Look at verse 25. He answered and said, but I see four men. This is Nebuchadnezzar. He's popped a bag of popcorn. He's sitting back looking inside of the fire because he's sadistic that way, watching these men in capital punishment. And he leans forward and says, well, I see four men. We, We sent three in there. I see four men unbound walking in the midst of the fire, and they're not hurt. And the appearance of the fourth is like a son of the gods. Do you know what this is? It's an Old Testament sighting of Jesus, right? Since Jesus is God, you need to know, he has existed forever. When Jesus was born, that wasn't his beginning. He created the world. He has lived forever as God. That moment when Jesus was born was merely the time when God became a man. But since Jesus has lived forever, Jesus was alive throughout the Old Testament. And Old Testament sightings of Jesus are called Christophanies. And this is a place where we see a Christophany, an appearance of Jesus before his incarnation at the birth in Bethlehem. Here in the middle of a fire, Jesus shows up. And he shows up in a way. Guys, it's so powerful. It's so miraculous. He does something amazing. When Jesus shows up, do you notice what doesn't happen? There are several things. One, the fire isn't quenched. You guys notice that? Jesus showed up and here's the fire still going strong. But he's also walking around. in the midst. This is actually really funny. Look at verse 26. This makes me laugh. Then Nebuchadnezzar came near to the door of the burning, fiery furnace, and he declared, Hey, Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, servants of the Most High God, come out and come here. Then Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego came out from the fire. This makes me really laugh. What would you do if you were in the middle of a burning fire and you realized that you'd finally been freed and could leave any time that you want? I think I'd know what I'd do. I'd be high-stepping it to the end zone, running like my hair was on fire. I'd be getting out of that place. They don't do that, do they? What do they do? They stay in. Did you just notice that? They had to be thrown into the fire. They had to be commanded to come out. You know why? Because they would rather walk in the fire with Jesus than rest at the throne of a king. Why? Because there is something peculiar and sweet and precious about being with Jesus even in the midst of suffering. Philippians chapter 3 calls it the fellowship of his suffering. When we go through the trials of this life, Philippians 4 says there's a peace that surpasses all understanding that comes with the fellowship that Jesus brings that we don't have the same way when life is smooth sailing. We never know just how much peace Jesus is able to bring till we're in a boat that seems to be sinking in the middle of a stormy sea. Many of you have known this fellowship with Jesus. Many of you have told me about it through the years. I've walked with some of you through grief and illness and loss and death. And as hard as it's been, I have seen so many of you look back at me and say, Titus, I have never hurt so much. And I've never felt Jesus so close. 
Guys, the fire is a place of fellowship. And there's so much that I could say about this. I just want to encourage some of you who are struggling in a specific way. There are some of you who are hesitant to do hard things in your life. You've been hesitant to be obedient to God. Maybe it's about a relationship or your job or your finances. The the basics are this. You've got to do something hard as a part of obedience. And you just don't want to face the fire. You know it will be hard and your life will be difficult as a result of your choice. And I just want to encourage you, friend, in this way. Don't avoid the fire. Don't run from difficulty because you aren't actually running from the possibility of pain. You're running from fellowship with Jesus. Would you step in faith today believing that Jesus will meet you in the fire because Jesus has designed it for fellowship to provide peace that can't be understood in a presence that will never leave or forsake. Let me just ask you this. What would change about the choices that you have to make today if you truly believed that Jesus will meet you where you're most afraid to go every moment that you trust in him. He's designed the fire for freedom. He's designed the fire for fellowship. Let's just end by looking at this last use that God has for the fires of life. God uses the fire for his fame. Look at verse 28 and 29. Nebuchadnezzar answered and said, Blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who has sent his angel and delivered his servants who trusted in him. And set aside the king's command and yielded up their bodies rather than serve and worship any god except their own god. Therefore I make a decree, any people, nation, or language that speaks anything against the god of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego shall be torn limb from limb and their houses laid in ruins. For there is no other god who is able to rescue in this Way. Now listen, we can debate about whether or not Nebuchadnezzar's confession was a true conversion. We talked about that a couple weeks ago. We'll talk more about it in the next couple of weeks. I don't have an answer to that one either. Um, but I do know that God is doing something here that's very clear. He's using this moment to spread his glory and fame among the Babylonian Empire. He took the trial of his people and he used it for his glory. And listen to me, friend. God aims to do the same thing for you and me in my pain and yours. The, the, the reality is there's no better testimony to the power of God than when this world sees that he is satisfying and good in the lives of people who are suffering that he can do something for us that nothing else in this world can do. When he, when he provides peace and when he sustains us in the middle of our pain, he's showing his power to do what no other thing in this world can provide. He alone is satisfying to the souls of men. He alone is stronger than suffering. He alone is a source of unshakable joy. And our lives in that way, guys, become a front row seat to the people around us, to see how God is God in us. Our fiery trials spread God's fame throughout this world, starting with the people in our life. Some of you may remember the story. A man named Steve Saint was a child when his missionary father, Nate Saint, was killed along with four other missionaries while they were in the jungles of South America in 1956. One of those other missionaries was a man named Jim Elliot. Well, those five young men gave their lives trying to reach the Alka Indians with the gospel of Jesus. And after their death, 
Life magazine ran their story, and it actually became known throughout the world. Years later, Steve Saint, Nate's son, was visiting a predominantly Muslim part of Africa. And at one point, he's traveling through a particularly dangerous place, and he's in a a fairly unreliable truck as he's doing that. And he's thinking, this is pretty dangerous to be driving through here with this old truck. And it, it caused him to think about the fact that his father had to take a dangerous step and make a dangerous move. And it made him think about his father's death. And for some time, he was tempted to think that his father's death was just some random act of violence, not necessarily a part of God's greater plan. And as he's thinking through that, he had to pull off to the side of the road. And he met a man there who had been a convert to Christianity from Islam. And in the course of just talking there, Steve found out that this man had actually endured a tremendous amount of suffering. His own family had even tried to kill him. So then Steve asked, what was it that helped him to continue following Jesus when it had brought him so much suffering? I mean, where did his courage come from since he didn't grow up in a Christian culture? Well, the man told him that the missionary who had led him to Jesus Christ had given him books and said, hey, read these about other Christians who've suffered for their faith. And he said his favorite book of all those books was about five young men who'd risked their lives to take the good news of Jesus to the Indians of South America. And those young men were so satisfied in Jesus that they were willing to die for the sake of Christ, and it caused his heart to want to live for the sake of that same Jesus. Well, there Steve Saint was stunned. He said, one of those men was my dad. On the other side of the world, the Muslim convert made sure Steve knew something. It was the story of God's work and his father's suffering that God had used to help him hold strong to faith in Jesus. God was doing more to spread his fame than Nate or Jim Elliott or Steve Saint, or you and I could ever known. And I want to ask you this. What if you really believed that your pain and suffering weren't primarily about you? Like, what, what if you really believe that God is using your suffering and his work in your suffering to bring your friends, your neighbors, your coworkers, maybe even your children to faith in Jesus. Let me ask you, would you be willing to walk through the fire of life if it resulted in someone that you loved being spared from the fires of hell? Friend, your pain isn't pointless. Your suffering isn't random. The fiery trials of life are being used by a glorious God. And know what he's doing to you today? He's not simply allowing you to suffer He's using the fire to bring you freedom and fellowship and the fame of the glory of his name to the people of your world through your fire. And the greatest example that that's the way that God works isn't actually Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. It's not even you and me. It's Jesus. No one endured more suffering and pain than Jesus. The only perfect man who's ever lived 
was despised and rejected and suffered the wrath of God for our sin at the cross. His pain wasn't pointless. His suffering wasn't random. And his death wasn't final. His pain was used by God the Father to free us from our sin forever, to fellowship with us in his presence forever, and to bring glory to the fame of his name forever. So listen, friend, who's walking through the fire. Look to Jesus The one who suffered in your place, the one who ultimately saves you from your sin, the one who will redeem and restore before everything's said and done, the one who will show the glory of his grace and mercy to everyone who trusts in him. In the midst of the fire, look to Jesus. He's at work. He's freeing you. He's fellowshipping with you. He's spreading his fame to the nations through you. Trust in Jesus today. Would you bow your heads? Let's make our prayer. Father, I praise you for this historic account of three young men who stood strong in the fiery trials of life. And Lord, I know that I look out this morning over men and women who are walking through trials of various kinds. And I'm asking you, Lord, would you encourage our hearts To believe this isn't some random, pointless thing. The pain in their marriage, the pain in their relationships with their parents or children, the suffering of their sickness. For those whose spouse has gone on to be with you and the shadow of death has loomed so large over their hearts, those who've walked through unimaginable abuse, God, I pray that you would fill our hearts with faith to believe that beyond what we could understand, you're writing a story that we could never anticipate to write. You're at work. Help us, Lord, I pray, to trust you. God, I pray that you would liberate us that we would value what's most valuable and let go of the system and stuff of this world that captures our hearts. Cause us to desire holiness and righteousness, knowing that this life is temporary and you are eternal. Father, I pray for fellowship in their suffering of those who are walking through pain today. Show up, Jesus. Show up in undeniable ways to my brothers and sisters. Visit them by the power of your spirit with comfort and peace. Help them hang on and let them know that they're being held in your hand. Father, be glorified by the way we suffer. Be glorified, I pray, that this world would see that Jesus gives something the world cannot give and let our hearts, let our lives provide a front row seat to the glory of Jesus. We ask that you would work in us as we leave this place and walk by faith in Christ and ask all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen.